vacation with my parents was a bad idea. I knew it was a bad idea, but I went anyway because my therapist told me to go. In hindsight, maybe this was just a test of how well I could verbalize my boundaries, and I failed. That's not a thing, is it? Being tested? At therapy? Seems counterproductive. I'm trying to relax, but it's so hard. I know there's a mountain of reality waiting for me at home when I get back. But apparently, you can't collapse in the middle of a Starbucks after your sixth triple espresso of the day without people telling you that your, quote, stress levels have become unmanageable. I think I've taken, like, a hundred walks so far, and we're only on day three. Thank God the phrase, just getting my steps in, is something my mother recognizes from TV, otherwise she might start asking questions. Never mind the fact that I am not carrying any kind of device. Maybe I'll just stay here for a little while. Speech isn't too crowded, and it's September, so there are no kids. Shit. But there are other adults, so maybe stop talking to yourself out loud. You probably look crazy. Hi, I'm sorry, I say, in the general direction of a person lying on the dune. They're probably trying to have a relaxing evening. Don't worry, I'll ruin that for you. Too late, too late, I definitely look crazy. Self-editing is not my strong suit, so I go on. I could pretend I had in like a Bluetooth headset or something, but uh, the truth is I was working some stuff out. It's been a tough couple months, so yeah. I didn't mean to bother you. The person's head and upper body is covered by a burgundy towel to block out the sun while they take a nap. It actually looks just like mine, which I notice but don't comment on for once. But I see them shake their head and give me a thumbs up. So I know they've kind of heard me, but they're probably on their own journey. Or mushrooms, they could be on mushrooms. This beach has that kind of vibe. Everyone is just laying in the sand, quietly soaking in the uninterrupted sound of waves. It's nice. Is this some kind of retreat? I ask my neighbor quietly, realizing that it's a little weird that no one is like playing catch or body surfing or even idly burying cherry pits in the sand after enjoying a midday snack. They shake their head again and give me the same half-hearted thumbs up. I am very clearly bothering this poor person, which doesn't always stop me. They probably have headphones in too. Ugh, I just decide maybe I'm gonna quit while I'm ahead. These people all seem relaxed, so maybe I'll just take a cue from them. I open my bag, take out my beach mat and unroll it. Then I lie down and cover my face with my towel to block out the blinding sun, which is actually quite helpful. Then I just try and soak up the quiet. I would listen to a guided meditation or an audiobook or something, but my therapist insisted I leave my phone at home. She said I should disconnect from the outside world and really listen to myself and try to heal. She's obviously never watched a single Netflix documentary. I'm basically setting myself up to get kidnapped. We saw disappear while healing, I guess. My watch, not a smart watch, just a regular old timepiece, because apparently counting my steps is also too much pressure. Just don't tell my mother I'm not doing it. It's not like I ever make my goal anyway. My watch, my regular watch, tells me it's four o'clock. So I should be able to find inner peace and make it back to the Airbnb by six o'clock. Any longer than that, and my parents will snap back to their year spent watching Unsolved Mysteries in the evening and call the cops. Or worse yet, they'll call my ex-husband. <sighs> Even when it's just in my head, the ex part still stings. 
I wonder if his 24-year-old girlfriend is enjoying the brand new clawfoot tub I just had put in. Oh god, that thought is not relaxing. Well, it, it probably is for her, but okay, that's, that's not helping. <sighs> Time to clear my mind. And if that doesn't work, maybe one of these people will sell me some mushrooms. Oh my god. I think I fell asleep. No, no. I don't know why I said think. I definitely fell asleep. Shit, what time is it? Oh, it's still kind of light out, but not as light as I want it to be. Oh, 7.03? I slept for three hours? God, I better sit up slowly. The beach is probably empty by now, and I don't want the blood to rush to my head. No one will find me if I fall over and injure myself, which would be my luck. Hmm. Well, it's kind of empty. The only people remaining appear to be asleep as well. My neighbor hasn't moved. The towel is still over their face. And it's not just like two people either. I say about half the people who were here when I arrived are still lying in place. It looks like we all stumbled into Sleeping Beauty's village or something. Maybe I should wake them. The beach sweeper is gonna come by and hit somebody. Oh, <sighs> well, I guess I'll, I'll start with you say to my nap neighbor with the burgundy towel. I cautiously get up and take a few steps. As I get close, I notice something strange. Their outstretched legs are pale, very pale, and their hands are tense. I don't know how else to describe it, but it looks wrong. Hey, uh, I guess, I guess we both slept for a while. It's like seven o'clock and almost dark. The cops don't like people staying here overnight, so should get up. Nothing, no response, nothing at all. I walk a little closer. Hello, time to wake up. I try clapping my hands, which scares a group of shorebirds into flight, but no movement at all from my neighbor. Cautiously, I kneel down next to this person and put my hand on their upper arm, a place still covered by the towel so as not to creepily touch their bare skin. Hey, I say in a low voice. It's time to get out of here. I give the arm a little shake, but still no response. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I don't like it. I'm just going to take this off your face in case you're hard of hearing or can't move your arms or something and, and need to see me. I cautiously grab a corner of the towel and slowly pull. I see a long brown ponytail spread out in the sand first, then a hairline and a pale forehead and eyes, wide open eyes. Oh, Jesus Christ. <gasps> I drop the towel and yank my arm back towards me as though I've touched a hot pan. Oh God, oh my God, oh boy. Oh. I creep backwards toward the towel and peer at what appears to be a girl in her early twenties. I inch the rest of the towel off she is not sleeping. Her hazel eyes have begun to cloud over and her mouth hangs open. I shift my gaze down from her face and that's when I notice that her chest is covered in blood, which is a very similar color to the towel, which I notice is also drenched, though you wouldn't be able to tell that at first glance. Her hands are not tense, they're rigid. One has dug itself into the loose sand and... <gasps> The other is covered in loops of duct tape, and the only free digit is her thumb. Nope, 
No, 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 no. It wasn't a thumbs up. It was never, never a thumbs up. She wasn't agreeing with me. She was dying. Her hands must have been taped together, and she, she managed to get one free. She got that far, and I didn't even notice. Oh, God, do I, do I call the cops now? Fuck, I can't. No devices. Help, help me, somebody, anybody, help me. I repeat this over and over, and I start screaming it at the people on the beach when something occurs to me. They're not moving either. I run down the dunes and toward the other people lying stone still in the sand spread out over an expansive, tranquil shore where the surf is creeping ever forward. No, 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 no. My stomach drops. Everyone has a burgundy towel over their face, just like I did. I must have hidden in plain sight. Whoever did this must have thought I was already dead. I run from person to person and every one of them is the same, hands bound in tape behind their back, wide open eyes, chest covered in blood. Jesus Christ, what is going on? I uncover six of them before I stop, realizing that they are all the same. They're all going to be the same. And what I need to do is get help. I scan the shoreline, the street, the air above me, but there's only silence. I'm afraid to run. I'm afraid to stay. I don't know what to do. God damn it, I wish I had my phone. Wait. Where's that coming from? Follow the sound, follow the sound, just follow the sound. It's coming from the girl I fell asleep next to. Where is it, where is it, where is it? It's under her back pocket. I'm so sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to touch you, but... Oh God, stay on the line, stay on the line, stay on the line. Oh, got it. Timer. Why do they all have the same timer set? The light has become a pale blue memory on the horizon. I stand, frozen in the sand, scanning the beach around me. At first I don't notice them, because it's so dark. Did you know that cats can feel vibrations in their whiskers? They can. Whiskers help guide a cat through their surroundings, like eyes in the back of their head. But they also sense movement and danger. I think... Humans have this ability too, but they don't always realize it. We don't process every little sound because we're taught that they won't hurt us. We're told that we can feel safe, but every once in a while, for whatever the reason, big or small, we don't. When that happens, the animal takes over, and suddenly we can feel things like a cat in the dark. Every cell in our body recognizes the entrance of another person without seeing or hearing them arrive. It's hard to explain why you can feel someone looking at you. But you can, just the same. And that's how I knew I wasn't alone. A quarter moon has risen, and in its light, the glassy water looks almost solid. I turn back to the dunes and notice a single silhouette rise from the grass underbrush, then another, and another. Farther down the beach to my right, a body sits up and casts aside their towel. Foolishly assumed they were all dead. But if I could hide in plain sight, why couldn't they? To my left, I saw them appear from the dark corners of the jetty, and suddenly they were everywhere. I turned in circles, not knowing where to run. And then I felt it a slow exhalation in the back of my neck, followed by a voice that whispered in my right ear Time's up. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. 
and we would be dead. happened that's up to everybody well I mean I also want to make it clear before I start that monologue is like not based on facts from this case yeah 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 I just thought like okay it's in dunes and there's a body on the beach how can I make this a thing Mm -hmm. and like is it is it a cult are those people like a crazy murder cult right right. are they even people Mm -hmm. what what do you think they are if they're not people I don't know Swamp monsters, maybe ocean creatures. Okay, are they are they like a like some sort of cu- like devil worshiping cult that's sacrificing people on the beach? Yes, yeah, probably. I know where you're going with this. They are not aliens. Get okay. out of here. All right. All right. I would never invoke aliens. <laughs> 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 but it's up to you guys. And if you have a theory, let us know. Put it in the Facebook group. I want to hear what you think happened at the end of that story. Oh, that'll be fun. It's a choose your own adventure. Well, the cat has something to say. I know she has a theory, but I don't speak cat. <laughs> sorry, Flower. Mm, so sorry, Flower. Hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. Um, so yeah, I had to get real scary this week to make up for my ability to write vampire fiction. Yeah. I can't do it. I'm so bummed about it. It's because I'm you were so probably sorry. trying not to write it to be like a romance drama. No. I don't mind romance. I just like every time I wrote something, I was like, this is so played out. It sounds so trite. I hated it. But that's the problem. It's all played out. You just got to go with it. You just have to like lean into it. Yeah. Oh, man. I just couldn't make it happen. I'm going to leave the vampires up to you from now on. All right. All right. (laughs) Get ready. Giddy up. Time for vampires, Leslie. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But this week, we're taking on a case that had a super important update just a couple weeks ago. Uh, So this is pretty topical. For nearly 50 years, this case was simply known as the Lady of the Dunes. Mm. It's like an urban legend. Not an urban legend because it happened, but it's like a local legend. Everybody knew about it. Um, And this referred to the way the nameless victim was found. So for 47, I think, years, they could not find this woman's identity. They just knew it was a woman they found dead in the dunes. Okay. Yeah. Um, And dead in a horrible way, which we'll get to later. We didn't know who she was. We didn't know if anyone was looking for her because a lot of times in these old cold cases, they were someone who was like a drifter or like, you know, they didn't have a ton of people out looking for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not the case in this story. We didn't know what happened to her either or why. All anybody knew was that she had been brutally murdered and left to be discovered by vacationing children. Oh, boy. Yeah, not great. But thanks to DNA analysis and modern genealogy websites, this decades-old case is one step closer to being solved. The victim has been identified as 37-year-old Ruth Marie Terry, and she most certainly did have people looking for her. Mm. So yeah, she had like a, a family who loved her and wanted her to come home. It wasn't like, oh, I'm from a home where life is bad and abusive and I ran away from something and people weren't looking. That's not this at all. So it, that, that makes it stand out in some ways. 
And yes, I also know that another case had a very recent and important update. I am, of course, talking about uh, the Delphi murders, but we're going to talk about that more on Postmortem. So if you want to hear about the uh, information I have on the Delphi update, which is a little bit more than you might read in like the average articles, because I went kind of deep, you guess you have to be a patron. Okay. Yeah. So uh, join and then we can talk about it. Nice. Yeah. But we have a little bit of business to attend to before we get into the nitty gritty. To round out what was a real roller coaster of a year, Leslie and I both decided to leave the country. We sure did. Separately. <laughs> at different times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really great for a podcast we do together. We. Oui. But you know what? We really didn't decide on our own. Other people made plans and were like, you're coming. Yeah. Which is honestly the best way to get me to do something. You just have to tell me to do it with the smallest bit of authority and I'm I'm just going to listen. Yeah, same here. Yeah. I hate the idea of getting into trouble and I don't want to make plans, so... <laughs> And if it involves me going to another country for a little bit, sure. And and you're going to plan all the stuff? Yeah. Just drag me around. Oui, oui, merci beaucoup. (gasps) Leslie's so French, you guys, because she just got back from Paris. (laughs) You got to do that Frencher. Oh, I don't know. Can't do it. It just feels wrong now that Mm -hmm. I've been there. (laughs) Well, now you know. Now I know. It's not funny because like. None of them laugh the way we think they do. No one goes, ha, ha, ha. That's right. That's terrible. That's, yeah. Well, welcome back to, like, not cool America. Merci beaucoup, Holly. Oh, boy. <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about your trip? How was it? It was really fun. It was a very bougie. We ate a lot Jeez. of food, uh, delicious dinners, and lots of wine, lots of pastries, mm. lots of fromageries. Oh, <laughs> and uh, I went to the catacombs. How was the catacombs? It was amazing. Oh, I'm so um, jealous. It was so it was interesting because I, whether I actually can feel like spirits or, you know, something energies in the yeah. room, you know, there's like times that, and I've told the story about like how I'll yell like Nana whenever I feel like something's invoke in my room nana. or something. I invoke the Nana and she comes and clears the the bad energy out for me. And uh, so when we got down into the catacombs, which I think is like 1,500 meters below or something, it was like the first walk through the hallway felt like real spooky. Yeah. And then we like started to hear this weird voice. Oh, no. To the point where like Corinne was in front of me and she was just like, what what, what was that? Because this is not her thing. Like she she planned like a perfect girl's getaway. And oh I was like, God. we're going to the catacomb. Which I love. I <laughs> yeah. love that Corinne is Leslie's business partner, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we're going to the catacombs and there's a really beautiful cemetery to walk through after. And she was like wonderful were you like you will do my one yeah. thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then we proceeded afterwards to eat lunch at this like beautiful place that had like pink flowers everywhere and you had catacomb dust yeah. all over you i yeah. love that idea <laughs> <laughs> for sure for sure um so the the first part of the walk was very like eerie and then we heard this voice and it was like a low like grumbling Ooh. like Ooh. ew why yeah so she like turns around and I have this video of it happening too. She turns, she's like, what the fuck was that? Oh, I love it. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, and it did, it like startled me. Ew. And then we like heard it again and it almost sounded like it was coming through the walls with us, right? Did you ask your guide or is it self-guided? It's self-guided. Okay. We had like little like um, Headphone audio thingies. things, yeah. 
And so as we're like walking further, I do notice that there's like a couple further behind us. And then as we like get more actually into where all the skulls are, Mm -hmm. I hear him talk and it was just him. He was just talking and it just like echoed (laughs) down. I was like, I think that's his voice. He's a very deep voice. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, oh, it's fine. Um, And then after that, I will say it felt eerie walking through the beginning part. But once we actually got to the skulls, Mm -hmm. it was just like there was no weird vibes. It's okay. very calming okay. and very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The way that everything's arranged, like mm-hmm. all the bones and stuff looks, all the pictures at least, looks like yeah. awesome and pretty. Yeah. So I uh, I do highly suggest. I now want to go to like the Roman catacombs. Oh, there are a few that I want to go to. I want to go to that ossuary, the really yeah. famous one. Yeah. So that was, that was Paris. It was really fun. Everybody awesome. was very nice there. And I got to speak a little French, but everybody spoke English. So that was helpful whenever they were like, we don't know what you're saying. Perfect. <laughs> so you can speak a little French. You can be our French interpreter now because I can't. And our bestest Canadian fiend has been probably horrified for years now. So I only know a few things. I can obviously say we. Oui. Mm-hmm. I can say je ne peux pas, which is I just can't. Oh, good. I'm glad <laughs> you know that one. I'll try and learn it in learn German that one too. really fast. Um, I know où sont les toilettes. Oh, toilets. And uh, yeah, I know. Oh, l'addition, s'il vous plaît. What does that That's mean? That's the uh, check, please. Oh. <laughs> Crafto. That's to get some water. Oh. Wine, please. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you also always need like some tap water. Got to hydrate. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Leslie had that wonderful, fun excursion to Paris. And in just a week's time, I leave to spend nearly 10 days in Austria. Yeah, you're so fancy. No, you are fancy. (laughs) I I like that you're like, I went to Paris. Everything was beautiful. There was a wall of flowers. I saw bones, but they were perfectly curated. And I'm like, I'm going to Austria. (laughs) We we ate and drank a brunch under the Eiffel Tower. I'm like, I'm going to home of the Krampus, where I hope to have a pretzel the size of my head. I love it. I I had a a macaroon the size of my head. Oh, so good. So anyway, um, spoiler alert, I remembered, I was excited to go on this vacation to like the, it's through all the Christmas markets. It's like a cruise down the river to all the Christmas markets and it's supposed to be really beautiful. And I was excited. But then I remembered that the Krampus lives there. It is like the number one largest Krampus party destination in the world. And now I'm Super excited. Yes, there I, you go. I will not be there on Krampusnacht, which is when the big, huge party and the parade is. We like, is that get the fifth? Yeah, that's the day I get home. Oh, is it? I don't want to talk about oh, it. Um, but I have a feeling there'll be like some lead up stuff. I'm feeling there'll be some, some Krampuses I about. I think it's going to be real quiet right until then. I don't think so. I don't think so. Get me on that plane. I have an ancient Christmas demon to meet. Let's go. <laughs> And, like, I can't just go walking up to the Krampus looking lackluster. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm going to yeah. find him. Yes. I really have to bring it. And Leslie just got back from Paris, so she mm-hmm. looks like a model. Yeah, I know, but I got to keep this up. That's right. Your skin aged backwards because you were on, like, Paris water in time. But, like, mm-hmm. now that you're back in America, it's gonna. you got to have some upkeep. I do. Absolutely. So I I was trying to think of what we could do. And I tried to like find some kids to swat with sticks and then throw in a giant sack because it seems to be working for the Krampus. So yeah. like I want to mm-hmm. impress him when I see him. The kids are fast and I'm nearly always tired. 
So I figured we should go with a potion that is a little more user-friendly. Okay. How about a steaming hot mug of... <clears throat> Validation, a hill worth dying on. Mmm, toasty. And wouldn't you know, our fiends can fill our mugs right from the comfort of their very own homes. How? But how, you must be asking yourself. Yes. Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you. Head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. Ratings and reviews equal attention. Attention equals support. And support equals more and better content for all of our fiends. Everybody wins. Okay. Yeah. But if you can't wait for more, we would be dead in your life. Just too impatient. Can't mm -hmm. wait for it. Mm -hmm. Well, then lucky for you, you don't have to. You can simply support us over on Patreon. Patreon. Sticking with the low. I like that. I All like right, cool. Feels good. <laughs> go with it then. Just go with your feelings. There for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show host mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. You'll also get a special gift in the mail from us, giveaways, merch deals, opportunities to Zoom with us and other cool patrons, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. Oh my goodness. So much stuff. Yes. Very much worth it. And you wow. could be like $5 a month. Yeah. And you get all of that. It's amazing. I know, it's a good deal. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod anywhere and everywhere you get your content. You can like our posts, share our posts, like and share our posts if you're feeling like an all-star. Leave us a comment. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend. Tell a neighbor. Tell um that one friend at your friend's giving gathering who didn't bring anything but had to take a plate home for their roommate. Brenda. I didn't even have to ask. Brenda's been here before, and she's now she's just doing shit. She's not contributing to the feast. I know. Probably doesn't even have a roommate. It's yeah. for her later that night. Yeah. And she just thought it was fine. And, like, we were all like, no, like, you you can take, like, a little plate, but, like, not, like, not like every Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah, yeah, like. That whole pie is not for you. I wanted some of those mashed potatoes yeah. with leftovers. Everyone knows leftovers are the best. Yeah. And you just because you're like, oh, it's for my roommate who was sick doesn't make it any better. And then later she's like, she has COVID. And we're like, you exposed us all to COVID. Yeah. <sighs> Brenda. Fucking God, Brenda. God. But you know what, Brenda? If you support We Would Be Dead, uh, we'll forgive you. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? Take all the Thanksgiving dinner. But like, as long as you tell that sick roommate of yours to listen to us. And maybe like be a top tier patron. Yeah. Be like a $20 patron. Yeah. And then your friends and Brenda can become fiends and we can all hang out together. She does always bring the canned cranberries, so. Wait, if she's bringing canned cranberries, mm -hmm. I'm okay with her. Because yeah. those are my favorite. But that's what I'm saying. Everyone knows I have to have them. Mm -hmm. Anyway. But she does take the one can that didn't get used back home oh, with her. Okay. She never leaves it. Hey, Brenda, at least leave me a can of cranberries. <laughs> you know I love them. <laughs> Leslie, do you have anything to add this week before we begin? Well, Holly, <laughs> I actually do. I'm so excited. I have a couple things this week. I'm so excited. This is all I have for you guys, though, just so you know, because I was I was away in Paris, and um, yeah. I was in Paris. Yeah, Leslie doesn't know it, but I'm going to um, try and get her to write a whole episode this coming week. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's all right. I, I prepared myself mentally for Excellent. Um, okay, so I have a couple of things I need to discuss here. Please. First off, 
Did you hear about Harry Styles and his eye injury? No. Okay. So I just was, I heard you at your desk while I was sitting at my desk be like, Harry Styles. <laughs> yeah. Just giggling and be like, oh, ooh, huh? that's all I know. How did they know it was Skittles? Um, so Harry Styles was performing and uh, I think it was the end of the set or the end of the concert and a fan threw Skittles. Uh, I think maybe to grab his attention or something. He didn't yell, taste the rainbow. He did not. But then he, he did, not he did a terrible job. Oh, uh, but something hit his eye. I guess it was the Skittle. And I didn't understand how they knew because they just kept calling it like a Skittle was thrown at his eye. And I was like, <laughs> how did they know it was a Skittle? But I guess it was a lot. And other people were witnessing like Skittles on the stage. and Skittles. Yeah. And a one hit his eye and it like, like uh, hurt him and the whole all of his fans are just like why why would you throw a skittle and skittle made a statement and skittles made a statement they said do not throw skittles <laughs> if i was the social media manager for skittles i would have been like this is fucking gold yeah please say also, clever shit don't hurt our national treasure yeah. it's not even really Canada's, ours Canada's national treasure he's canadian he's british right? isn't he british oh he's yeah. british yeah i don't know He's from somewhere. I don't know. He's from everywhere. He's everyone's man. Um, so that was uh, interesting, and I had to That's get that off news. my chest because like that it. was wild. Um, also, I have an update for everybody. <gasps> Ooh, bring it. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Ouija board. Yes. And I told a story from Anne and Beth uh, Barang. Yes. About their Ouija board experience when they were a bit younger, and that they had. Um, it was very scary. Yeah, they had. Uh, summoned a spirit named James and uh, James had like stuck with Anne for years and I think still like appears sometimes. Yeah, but she was very but casual about it. She was very casual about it. Um, But at the time of their meeting, they were, you know, trying to figure out who this spirit was. And one of the things that the spirit did was like lick her neck. Well, oh my God, that's right. He licked her. I could not handle that. I was very upset. And she says how, like, she can never see his face, but, like, she can see, like, his body form and stuff like that. So I have an update because at the end of that, she said that when her sister, Beth, her twin sister, Beth, had a son okay. um, and her son, Ethan, started to have an imaginary friend. The imaginary right. friend name was James. Yes. I didn't like that either. That was horrible. So Ethan wrote to me. I was going to say, isn't he one of our fiends too? Um, yeah. I okay. believe so. Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, who is 16, mm-hmm. wrote, Hey, I'm Ethan, but I go by Blue Eyes, da ba I already love this person. I know, I liked it. I just listened to episode 131 based on a true story where you opened with a Ouija story that my aunt Anne told you about James. I started seeing James when I lived in apartments when I was little. He used to play with toys with me, and he used to sit with me while I ate. He was fun, but for me, he changed his appearance every so often. It wasn't creepy to me, just unsettling when I talked about it. His most memorable form, yes, he had many, was a 1990s high school boy. Another one was some hippie with dreads that formed a peace sign. And then another was a little boy, maybe like six. Oddly enough, I could describe what he dressed like and what his hair was, but I don't recall his face, just like my aunt. Ugh, we're getting chills. I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate this, Ethan. <laughs> we love you. I didn't need to know any of this. Shake it off. Give it a little shake. I stopped seeing him maybe up until 
I was six. And every so often up until I was nine, then every so often after that. He was more his high school version and and still don't recall his face. Oh, God. I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I stopped seeing him as much, I'm still uncertain about, but I think he just had to help the next kid. Oh, okay. I think, that's right. Cute, it's like kind of cute. I think he uh, was there to help me. His oh. voice was distinctive and indescribable, kind and deep, but soft and soothing. Unlike my weird aunt, James did not lick me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we ended it. I love I that. Love that. <laughs> That's really sweet, though. That's a sweet spirit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Coming around on James. Maybe don't, maybe don't lick anybody. Maybe he has a dog and it was the dog that did that. Maybe. I just like, ugh. <laughs> All right. That was that's a good update. Um, that's my stuff. Uh, I um, also don't have anything prepared because I thought that we were talking about Frank Herbert's Dune. <laughs> and I thought we were going to talk about some Bene Gesserit women. Uh, I don't know today. what that means. Um, Andrew will know. Andrew Drema, the one person out there <laughs> in our listenership that's like, Yes, mm-hmm. June. Yeah, I am um, for a good a good while. That's what I thought we were talking about. Something about that, and uh, then Holly was like, "No, no, no. you live in a beach town, sand dunes." Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> if you want to be obvious about it, <laughs> so um, yeah, I just had to uh, toss out all that I wrote. All right. Well, you know. You can have a Dune special all to yourself someday. Thank you. Or we'll watch. It'll <laughs> be a host mortem. <laughs> we'll watch the one with Timothy Chalamet because even if I'm not interested, he's always interesting to look at. Yeah, so it's fine. Okay. All right. I would love to see you watch that movie. I'm gonna be mad the whole time, a hundred percent. You might just fall asleep. That might be the movie that you fall asleep to. I rarely. Fall I enjoyed asleep. it, but when it comes it's very to calming. It's calming. Aren't they like on other planets and shit? I can't handle that. It's just like a desert. It's just beautiful. They're not having a bad time. I mean, it's a bad time happening. Yeah, exactly. But it's all right. All right. Okay. It's a lot of dreamscapes. Okay. All right, then. Maybe. You never know. <laughs> well, all right, then. On with the show. We often think of a true story as a pretty straightforward thing. Something happens. A person describes it with words. And then curious parties receive those words and form images in their mind of what they are trying to describe. That's how a true story goes, right? A tiny movie will play in your head when you hear a story. At least it does for me. Not everyone has that. Not everyone has like mental imagery, apparently, or an inner monologue. Isn't that weird? That is weird, yeah. Like, do you hear like your voice narrates stuff when you, when like your world is happening around you occasionally, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some people don't have that at all. Yeah. I wish. Sometimes. I know mine is too loud. It doesn't stop ever. Mm-mm. But most of us will, if we're being told a story, we'll kind of see it play out in our head. And if the story's light on details, your trusty brain might just fill in a few. And then after you hear the story, you have it, and it's saved in the blockbuster in your mind, ready to be replayed whenever the mood strikes. But here's the curious thing about true stories: they don't just happen to one person. So much like a movie, they're recorded from multiple angles. Every angle carries its own unique bits of information, and only after you have collected all of them can you ever see the event with total clarity. Mm. So I like to say, I like, well, I didn't come up with this, but I I like the saying that, you know, when a couple people are telling the same story, like something happened, 
and they each tell their account and their accounts differ. The truth is probably in between the two. Yeah. It's never one of them is totally right and the other one is totally wrong. It's always like, well, they're both a little wrong and a little right. Mm -hmm. So let's go to Livonia, Michigan, 1958. All right. This is one angle we're going to start with on this story. We have several. Yeah. A young woman with thick red hair and bright blue eyes sits in the local hospital awaiting the birth of her first child. The woman, who is just 21, is not married. She and her husband separated shortly before she moved to Michigan, where she was making a go of things on her own. We don't know whether her ex-husband is the father of her child. There has never been any word on who is. She works in a local plant that makes door panels and seat covers for cars. And though she is making her way, she isn't ready to care for a child on her own. And this is a scary thing to face today in 2022 times. But in 1958, a time when a baby meant marriage come hell or high water, I'm willing to bet this was even scarier. Yeah. And also, the decision she makes shortly, like, I I think is a very brave one. We'll get to it in a second. So she gives birth to a baby, and it's a little boy that she calls Richard. And the woman knew that the best gift she could give her brand new son was a loving family who would care for him better than she was able to at the time. And so the woman arranged to have a couple who worked with her at the plant adopt her baby. Now, again, I think this is an incredibly selfless decision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The couple was kind and very good to Richard. I want to make it clear that he had a a wonderful childhood. He grew up with great people who loved him dearly. They loved him like their very own, which, of course, he was. But they also never forgot about the woman who gave them their precious child. Richard knew that he was adopted. He knew he had a biological mother out there in the world. And he knew that his mother was kind and warm, that she had beautiful red hair and blue eyes, and that she loved to sing. His parents told him of her often, and they always said really beautiful, glowing things about her. It was always like, yeah, I I thought this was so, especially for 1958. This is like a super sweet, evolved way to do it. They were like, you're, you know, your mom was so wonderful and so kind, and we're so glad she gave you that. Like, it was just a good thing. Mm -hmm. So Richard liked hearing about this and he always had this beautiful image of his mother in his head and he hoped that maybe maybe someday the two of them would actually be able to meet now we're going to jump to another angle chattanooga tennessee the summer of 1973 jim terry's mother is taking him to a motel to visit with his aunt who is about to leave town with her boyfriend the two are moving away for one grown-up reason or another so you're a little he's a kid by the way jim likes his aunt She has a big smile and pretty auburn hair. Her boyfriend was rich and smart. He owned an antique shop and dressed in nice clothes and often had to travel for his work, which is impressive when you're a kid Mm -hmm. and an adult. Jim and his parents said goodbye to his aunt and her boyfriend and then drove back home. His mother said the pair were planning to travel, quote, up north, but his father suspected they would end up in California. Jim didn't know which answer was right, but I'm betting it didn't really matter to him because he was 11. Anything more than an hour away from your own home when you're 11 is basically another country. Time passed and passed after this without any word from Jim's aunt, and his mother wondered what had ever become of her redheaded sister. She missed her, but at first, she wasn't too surprised. After all, her sister had left their family home in Whitewell, Tennessee as a teenager and struck out on her own. She moved around for a while, spending time in Michigan and then California, before returning to Tennessee in the late 60s. Wandering, it seemed, was in her blood. But eventually, she always found her way back home, which would not happen this time. Now we'll jump to another ankle. 
Provincetown, Massachusetts, July 26, 1974. 12-year-old Leslie Metcalf. There's a Leslie this week. Mm -hmm. Everyone drink. (laughs) (laughs) So Leslie Metcalf was on vacation with her family and a group of their friends. Provincetown, for those of you who don't know it, is located at the very tip of Cape Cod, which is a peninsula on the southeastern corner of Massachusetts where bougie New Englanders have summer homes. And slightly less bougie New Englanders have vacations in rentals. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've been there. I was going to say, am I right? I'm assuming yeah. you've been there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's a seaside resort, much like where Leslie and I live. So we're pretty familiar with the vibe. Packed to the gills in the summer, totally barren wasteland in the winter. Mm-hmm. Leslie and her family were doing the typical family summer vacation things, going to the beach, eating ice cream, taking in the sights, and walking their dogs along the coast. So they're the kind of family that rented a house and bought their dogs. Okay. That day, the group had been out hiking, and when they were finished, they made their way back to the Provincetown Visitor Center, where I am assuming there were restrooms and air conditioning and vending machines and other stuff you might want after hiking for a long time in the middle of the summer. Mm-hmm. So... I've seen what the visitor center looks like from the outside, but there are no pictures of the inside of it. I'm just going to assume that's kind of what is there. The visitor center is located on Race Point Road, right near Race Point Beach, which is bordered by a system of large sloping sand dunes. Now, not all dunes are created equal. Some of them are little. Some of them are just barriers to kind of keep the beach, the the surf from creeping up off the beach or or preventing beach erosion and stuff. Um, But these are big. These are like steep and um, there's a lot of them. It's just like a big sloping expanse yes. of like jagged looking hills. It's not like the Jersey Shore dunes. It's mm-hmm. different. And if you don't live in a beach town, you might not know that dunes are also not just sand. They're covered in sharp and sometimes tall grasses and other spiky vegetation. These particular dunes also have trees on them in some places, mm-hmm. like scrubby pine trees. Um, so It's a very like spiky situation. It's yeah. not pleasant. You, you don't want to be climbing around up there. You wouldn't like, for instance, go have a picnic up in the dunes or something. Right. It's, it's pretty unpleasant. And the vegetation that grows there grows in like burning hot sand. So it's, it's clearly not going to be like lush and nice. Yeah. Nothing for us. No, it's not super hospitable for people. Foxes love it, but people not so much. And then just inland of this area, there's like a library, bike paths, nature trails, and other destinations for people looking to like, you know, not strangle their family while on vacation. Mm. But, and I cannot stress this enough, it's not very likely that there, this area, especially the beach part, is heavily populated past a certain hour at night. Um, and I'm assuming this because that's how every other town is. Right. This is not the strip where you might find like a bunch of bars or shops or anything that's, or arcades. It's just nature center stuff. It's more of where you'd find like a turtle sanctuary. Yeah. And if that makes sense to you, then like you really get what I'm saying right now. <laughs> Just the wildlife reserve. It is. Basically, yes. There's yeah. like the any kind of stuff that would be heavily populated is like a trail yeah. in a library. So mm-hmm. probably by 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night, it is barren. Mm-hmm. So that's going to, you'll understand why I needed to make that point later. So Leslie and her family were almost at the visitor center when one of the dogs they were walking just like activated. You know how a dog will just out of nowhere for absolutely no reason bark and be on the highest alert for just no discernible reason sometimes? It's my least favorite. I know. You hate that so much. But that's what happened. For no reason at all that they could tell this dog was freaking the fuck out. 
And like, this isn't just the dog is barking at something. The dog is clearly like trying to pull off its leash and right. trying to run away. It's, it's like really alerted to something. And it's, it freaks out so much that eventually it's able to pull its leash out of its owner's hand and run. So when the dog runs off, 12-year-old Leslie decides to run after it. And you're going to be like, yeah, let the 12-year-old run after this dog. Obviously, I don't want to do it. So the family's like kind of trailing behind. The dog ran into the dunes off Race Point Beach. So these inhospitable dunes full of spiky things, the dog runs directly up into them. Oh my God, this just already sounds like, I'm just picturing my family and they would have been like, Leslie, run. <laughs> Get the dog. Yeah, I'm assuming oh, that's what's no. happening. I know, I'm assuming they're encouraging her to do I this. Am, I am Leslie. No, you are. <laughs> and we would be dead. Don't oh, worry, Leslie's no. still alive and well, it's fine. The dog eventually arrives to a destination in the dune that she cannot yet see. And it's just, she can hear, you know, you can hear where the sound is coming from. The dog has stopped running and it's just barking at something, which I also hate. Yeah. <laughs> like, what did you find? Clearly it found something, but it took Leslie a moment to catch up. So she walks up to the dog and she sees it sitting next to and barking no. at something stretched out in the tall grass. Ugh. And the thing she's looking at was pale and it was kind of bloody. No. And she thought, I, I think what I'm looking at is a dead deer. Dogs like things like that. And it's kind of natural. They're in this like scrubby nature area. There are deer around. We're on the East Coast and there's deer everywhere. Sometimes. Why would it be anything else? Why would it be anything else? <laughs> sometimes a coyote or a dog will kill one of them and leave it there. And sometimes we all, we've heard of this before. Hunters just leave what they shoot in the woods. And this is gross, but it's not scary, right? Then she gets a little closer. No, Leslie, turn around. She does not turn around. She sees that it wasn't a deer at all. It's a woman, Ugh. a dead woman. And there was nothing natural about what had happened to her. The woman was lying naked, face down, half on and half off of a light green, heavy cotton beach blanket that had been laid out on the ground. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not somewhere where you would comfortably lay on your beach blanket. No. There are photos of the crime scene. She's like right next to a pine tree. There's very tall dune grass. The ground is littered with sticks. And I mean, there are a lot of this is very Jeanette De Palma. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same. It's within the same few months. This is like two months before Jeanette and like in the, I mean, the same area of the country and stuff. So that makes me, makes me wonder a little bit, but it's the same kind of thing. Like, there's no way she walked out there just to take a nap in this comfortable. It's probably very buggy too, yeah. I imagine. So it would be unnatural for someone to oh. do that of their own free will. Also, when you first told me about this story, I was shocked that I had no reference point for this. Oh, no? Living so close to all of this. But now listening to this detail, mm -hmm. just the green blanket, like mm -hmm. how she was laying, where she exactly was. Mm -hmm. We've like told this story like as urban legends. Yeah, that. That tracks. That and, I, right. and I've always lived in some sort of beach town. So, yeah. like, we've always, like, gone into the dunes, which have not been comfortable. And, like, I know this story. Oh, but wow. But just, okay. like, this, go, it's it's more like a ghost story that yeah. was told. I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's, like, her ghost is there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure people talk about that. I don't have that part, but I'm sure it is something that's talked about. Oh, okay. So, there's more. She has a pair of... Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana that are folded and her head is resting on them. So it looks almost like she's made a pillow and put her head down. Okay. Remember, she's face down and it yeah. doesn't look comfortable. 
but that's what's there. Her long auburn hair is pulled into a ponytail with a gold-flecked elastic band. That detail gets me every time because do you remember when hair ties had the gold in them? Yeah. It's one of those. And like the little metal bit that joins it together. So it like caught in your hair all the time. I hate that. Yeah. I do too. But it was the 70s. So that's the hair tie. Mm -hmm. And her toenails had been painted pink. And that's where like the nice details end. The left side of her face had been beaten in and then the beating was severe enough to cave it in. So it's like just mangled. And her head was also nearly separated from her body. So she was, it says in every source that she was nearly decapitated. Okay. So it was hanging on by a thread basically. Both of her hands and one forearm had been removed and were nowhere on the scene, Mm -hmm. just gone. And a handful of her teeth were missing. The scene was gruesome. That's a lot. Okay. And let's not forget, a 12-year-old and a beagle found it. Obviously, they're traumatized and not keen on sticking around, so it's time to go back to the family and call the damn cops, who are probably freaking out that this happened in season. Yeah. This is July, and this is like a shore town. I can only imagine Kate May cops being like, fuck! Yeah. How do we not let people know about this? No. They probably were furious. There's also, I should say, another woman alive who tells a story that she was younger than little Leslie at the time. So she was like nine and she had been on the beach earlier that day and she had been walking around and she had stumbled upon the same scene, but she didn't register what it was. She was like, oh, somebody fell down. Something happened. And she like didn't tell anybody. She just walked away. Oh, which is weird for a kid because usually something like that, especially because the body was naked, Mm -hmm. you're going to be like, there was a naked person. Yeah, that is weird. But I mean, like this this story does not come back around. It does not do anything to solve this crime. Yeah. It's just something that exists out in the world. So I figured I would put it in there. So police and ev- investigators arrive pretty quickly because again, in season and make their way to the shocking scene where they are able to tease out a little bit more information than the 12-year-old in the Beagle before the medical examiner collected her for an autopsy. So the body was clearly a gruesome tangle of injuries. And in addition to that, there was a considerable amount of insect activity. Oh. Yeah, which means this is not a new scene. Mm -hmm. You don't get lots of bugs the second you die. But the scene around her was not gory or spattered with blood and there were no bits of tissue or anything, which is curious because if you're going to do the kind of damage that had been done to this woman, it's going to make a huge mess. Mm -hmm. Where's the mess? It's not even on the blanket underneath her. Mm. So take of that what you will for right now. Next, the police surmised that her teeth and hands had been taken and her face bashed in to obscure her identity. Law enforcement thought this may indicate that at some point in her life, she had been fingerprinted. And that's why they, the, whoever the killer was took her hands. Okay. Didn't want her to be identified by her fingerprints. The fact that she was also laying on just half of a small blanket. So imagine the blanket and she's on it like lengthwise, like it's, she's laying on it the right way, but she's like half of it is left without her on it. Right. And so to the police, this looks like someone was laying next to her. Okay. And that's why she's laying in that way. But there were no signs of a struggle, despite the obvious violence. And this is very violent, like something extremely violent happened. So it was suspected that she had been asleep when the initial attack occurred. 
Right, but that theory doesn't last for too long. Yeah, because so. it still can't happen. Exactly. There. Exactly. Okay. Later, we come to the assumption that it is likely that the things that happened to her happened somewhere else, mm-hmm. and then she was moved there. But then stuff happened after she was dead. So right. I think somebody probably visited her there while she stayed there, mm-hmm. like like Ted Bundy style. Ugh. Yeah. So, <sighs> also... There was significant decomposition and insect activity, as I mentioned, which indicated she'd been dead for quite a while, and the police surmised it was about two weeks. Oh. Yeah, so this is not a recent thing. Like, she had been dead for a while. And and as is evident by the fact that two kids found her, I assume that she wasn't in that location that long. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Because this, this beach, I mean, like, granted, the dunes are a little more remote, but people are walking around. It's not like she's in a cave or something. Right, right. So it's not like she was in that spot for two weeks. No, no, they don't. I mean, at this point, they definitely don't think that that's what happened. They think she was somewhere else and then she was moved there. I mean, it stands to reason she could have been there for a few days before Mm -hmm. somebody stumbled on her, but certainly not that long. The remains were found also just yards away from an access road. So it was clear that a car could have just driven up and put her there. Yeah. And there were two sets of footprints that led to the body. Okay. And tire tracks were found just 50 yards from the scene. Mm. So it looked as though, you know, they'd brought her out there. Police determined that the woman had been approximately five feet, six inches tall. Initially, they said five, eight, but it was five, six and weighed about 145 pounds. She had an an athletic build uh, and they said she was anywhere from like, 25 to 45 years old, which is a huge age gap. Yeah. That only gets bigger once we get to autopsy. I don't understand, but okay. The medical examiner, we're okay, so now we're on to autopsy. The medical examiner determined that the woman was anywhere from 20 or a little younger to 40 or to 49 years old. So just widened the gap by by 10 more years. Okay, okay. Yeah. But he also found out that she had extensive dental work done on the teeth that were still in her mouth which included porcelain crowns that were worth anywhere from $5,000 to $10,000. And remember, that's five to $10,000 in 1974, which is like $5 billion today. Holy crap. Yeah, so she had like expensive dental work. Okay. Uh, and the, and the um, forensic odontologist called this New York style dental work because it's cosmetically very appealing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how common these like pretty porcelain crowns were back then, but I guess they were something to look at. So the medical examiners see that she is nearly decapitated and they, but it's not just, it's not just a decapitation. They feel that this has been done through strangulation, which means some sort of like wire or something that was wrapped around her neck and pulled. And that's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. And it, it indicates there's definitely some kind of like tool happening with it. That's, Mm -hmm. that's not, I mean, any kind of decapitation is hard work. But you're not doing it with any kind of like sharp instrument. You're doing it with like something you have to pull, like you're oh. cutting a cake or something. It's, that's insane. Yeah. That, that, I don't know why, but that part always bothers me the most. Then one side of her head had been, the left side had been crushed with what they surmise was a military type entrenching tool. And this is something that looks kind of like a cross between a hammer and a pickaxe. Okay. So it's like to dig trenches out in the field. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty ugly thing. Like, Mm -hmm. it's going to do damage. The head injury, the medical examiner determines, is how she died. And the other mutilation, so the decapitation by strangulation, the hands, the forearm, and the teeth, were all done post-mortem. So that's all done after she's dead. Oh. 
why the weird neck thing? I don't, that, even when they say like, okay, well, they probably took teeth and, and their hands so that they couldn't identify her. Why'd you try and take her head off and then stop when you were almost done? That's just like you had a weird reason to do that. Mm-hmm. You wanted to do that. That wasn't, it wasn't serving you in any way. And that's not even the worst part. They also discovered that she had suffered extensive sexual assault with a foreign body. Post-mortem, again, this happened after she was dead. So like I said, I think whoever put her there visited her. And the foreign body, based on what it left behind, was assumed to be a block of wood. Ooh. Yeah. So she had splinters inside. I mean, I also, I don't know that they would have visited her there because if she was dropped there mm-hmm. later, then it might have just been before. Like, so they might have I, done all of that for like almost two weeks. And then the last couple of days, like. I assume her. that they visited her there at least once just because of the way she was found, like with the clothes propping her head up and half on the, the little blanket. And it looked yeah. like someone had been laying next to her. There were like a couple sets of footprints. Like I assume that they brought her there and like one last time or something or came back once. And then and then for all we know, they came back again after she was gone. We're like, oh, well, she's gone. We don't know. There was no cameras out there. Yeah. So we have no idea. So police are left with this like gruesome murder and nothing like no leads. They have no no idea what to do. So they started investigating missing persons cases in the area. And they combed through thousands and thousands of files with no luck. Detectives also canvass the era. They go to motels. They go to boarding houses. They go to, you know, any kind of place where you might stay if you were working there for a time or you were on vacation. Nobody recognizes the description of this woman. They tried to track down every vehicle that had been on the dunes that people reported, but nothing turned up for that either. So they still have big fat zero. At the scene, the sand and the beach blanket were not disturbed, suggesting that the body was possibly moved to that specific pot spot later, like we said. So it mm-hmm. didn't look like anyone had really moved too much. It was just kind of neatly there. No other evidence has ever been found. So that's it. Wild. I know. Not even like a fingerprint, nothing. Mm-hmm. Did they like broadcast this across like... Yeah, the... eventually, yes, okay. because they have like... There's a ton of sketches of what she probably mm-hmm. looked like without her face being mangled. But you also have to remember, this is 1974, right. and it news of this died in the state. Right. People in Massachusetts would have seen it, but it wouldn't have gone much farther, probably. Mm-hmm. So after several months of investigation, like ground, ground investigation, like the cops are doing, walking around canvassing, trying to find other cases, they have found absolutely no leads at all. Nothing. And so they buried the woman, the woman in October of 1974. So she was found in July. A couple months later, they bury her under a tombstone that reads, quote, and I hate this, unidentified female body found at Raceway Dunes, July 26, 1974. You couldn't even give her like a doe name or like a quotation or something. It's just unidentified female body. Right. I don't like that. And then for five years, nothing happened. It just, there was, there was nothing to go on. Police continued to explore any tips they may have gotten or leads, but they were pretty few and far between. And then in 1979, a facial reconstruction of the woman was created out of clay. And I'm sure it was haunting to look at Mm because they always are. I think I I saw it. mm -hmm. I'll put it in the photo suite. But still no one recognizes what this woman looks like. And 
they have nothing to call her. So locals have taken to calling her, calling her the Lady of the Dunes, mm-hmm. which is like nice. Why wasn't that on the tombstone? Right. It would have been better than unidentified female body found at Raceway Dunes. I know. The Lady of the Dunes. That's like mystical. It is. I like I that one. Didn't use it. So then in 1980, the Lady of the Dunes' remains were exhumed for examination. So like, we got to dig her up. We haven't found anything. Maybe we'll find something else. It's been some years. We have a little more mm-hmm. technology. Um, but this yielded no new information. But they did keep her skull. Okay. They didn't rebury her skull. They just reburied the rest of her. Why? Um, and they do eventually use it, but the skull stays on the police chief's desk for like the rest of his career. For what? Like inspiration? I don't know. A reminder? Like, I we need to find don't. who this is? No, I think he talked to it. I don't know. <laughs> Just bounced ideas off mm-hmm. of Where are skull? you? I don't know. That detail is included in like two articles and... It's never followed up upon. There's never an explanation. And I'm like, why? Huh. I don't love that. But they do eventually use the skull. So maybe he was like, I don't want it to get lost in evidence. I I have no idea. Because if we do go back to Jeanette De Palma, again, same area of the country, same year. They didn't really treat her evidence great. Yeah. (laughs) Everything got lost and messed up. So maybe that was common. And maybe he was like, I'm going to keep this here safe on my desk. And none of you fuckers are going to mess it up. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I truly don't know. And can he, we get like a quote from him? I <laughs> Where is this guy? What's I, his name? I don't. I didn't write his name down because okay. that story is terrible, and I didn't know if I, I need. I need answers. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll try and follow up on okay. it. <laughs> so, then in March of 2000, they exhumed the rest of her body again. Skull's still hanging out, but they're like, yeah. God, it's lonely. We gotta get the rest. And they uh, now we're in 2000, so DNA testing is a thing. So they get samples and they don't find any information, but they do catalog her DNA, which is good. In May of 2010, her skull, which, you know, was still on a desk, Mm -hmm. was placed in a through a CT scanner that generated images that were then used by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Can't tell you why the children place got them because she's not a child. And they created another reconstruction of what her face looks like based on this CT scan, which because the technology is more modern was a little more accurate. But still nobody recognized her. And really those are always so hard for me. Yeah. Like any even when I see like missing child posters mm-hmm. or anything like that, I'm like, I don't know that I'd recognize. Well they're always person. weirdly off. They it's, look like yeah. they look like bad CGI from like yes, twenty years ago. Every time. So you're like, I don't know that that's what Anybody looks like. You just look like Polar Express Tom Hanks. I can't help you. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, got to try, I guess. And they did. Yeah, yeah. So that generates no responses either. But that's not to say that there weren't leads and theories. They were just kind of wild. Okay. So in 1987, a Canadian woman, and this story is never followed up on either, and I need to know more. She tells a friend that she saw her father strangle a woman in Massachusetts around 1972. So she just makes out with this story. She's like, hey, um, so my dad killed a woman in 1972 in Massachusetts. I saw him strangle her. What? Police attempt to find this woman, but they never find her. They never find anything about it. And then that's it. <laughs> we just don't know. Was she lying? Was she not lying? Where is this right. woman? They can't find... Okay, so they can't find the woman who called in about this. No, they can't find the woman who was strangled. Okay. Well, that might be why. Like, they yeah. can't even find 
Yeah, they and then she's like, I think it was this, the lady of the dunes, but I guess it didn't line up to end up being her. Okay. Another woman told police that the reconstruction of the victim, so this was the um, the first one, like the clay one, looked like her sister, who disappeared in Boston in 1974. But neither one of these women turned out to be the lady of the dunes. They didn't find any evidence. It didn't line up with her. But like, where's your sister? And who did that man strangle? I know who. Okay, so now I'm thinking about this more. Is he in jail? No. The, I mean, did they go looking after the father? No. The, okay, I do. Because obviously they're not going to find her. Either they have her already or or she's yeah. hidden. Yeah. So where's but the they dad? don't they don't have enough to bring the dad in. This is just like yeah, total but even for questioning. I at least want to hear him say like I never strangled a woman. <laughs> I would at least like to hear that. <laughs> well, we can I can pick that thread apart and host okay. more than if we want to. Yeah, we're gonna look this up. Yeah, this uh, Leslie was gone. It's no school November, and I have had several. It's fine. You don't need to explain it. Kind of rough things. So. I just need to know more. Well, we can know more yeah. together. Um, mm-hmm. and our and if you're a patron, you get to know. Yeah, but if you're not. So, investigators also followed a lead involving a a missing criminal named, and I love this theory, and I wish it had been true. Her name was Rory Jean Kessinger. And this is a woman who had been incarcerated and then broke out of jail in 1973, and she was 25 years old. So she was locked up, and then she, she broke out and ran away. Authorities did see the resemblance, so she kind of looks like the mock-ups of the victim, but DNA from Kessinger's mother did not end up matching the DNA they okay. eventually took from the Lady of the Dunes. Okay. But what if she had been like a runaway convict? I know, but also I'm excited that that runaway convict was never found. No. That's nope. exciting. She did it. She got out. She did it. She got away. I hope she is living a wonderful life and is not convicting. I hope that she, um, unbeknownst to any of us, is like a movie star. I know. Yeah. And that woman is Reese Witherspoon. That's what I wanted to be. <laughs> Amazing. Then <laughs> she obviously would have been too short. Good end to the story, though. Yeah. And this is my favorite. There's more, but this one is my favorite. In August of 2015, um, a speculation arose that the Lady of the Dunes may have been an extra in Jaws. Oh. Like the movie Jaws, which was shot on Martha's Vineyard, which is also a bougie mm-hmm. Massachusetts beach right in the area. And this is about 100 miles south of Provincetown, so it's not that close, but it's not that far. Mm-hmm. And that was done between May and October of 1974. So the times do align. It was the same time. And who who made this speculation, you might I, be wondering? None other than Joe Hill, the son of horror author Stephen King. That's amazing. Right. So where did he come up with this? That's even better. He read a book called The Skeleton Crew, How Amateur Sleuths Are Solving America's Coldest Cases. Of course And then after he finished reading it, he watched Jaws. I love and it. he was like, you know what? I'm going to solve America's coldest cases. I'm going to do know. it. And I found her in Jaws. Case closed. Which <laughs> is such a confident swing to take. Right. <laughs> but what if it had been true? That would have been insane. Now, the reason he thought this is because there is an extra in Jaws mm-hmm. that is wearing blue jeans and a blue headband, and she has red-ish hair. Right. I'll include this photo in our photo suite. It is a stretch, yeah. a huge stretch. But he was like, I mean, you don't have any answers, so why not look at mine? Exactly. Right. So the cops were like, okay, buddy, that's, it could be true. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was 
fanciful and ridiculous and it did yeah. not pan out. So. I bet Stephen King is just like, oh my God. <laughs> oh no. Oh, God. Oh, that's, why he, that's why I gave him a different name. <laughs> He's not allowed to go by King. <laughs> Even though he looks like a photocopy of I his know, father. He really does. It's yeah. Insane. So that was dismissed, obviously. Yeah. That's a crazy thing. But in addition to the possible women who might have matched as a victim, they also had a few suspects who, who they think might have committed this crime. And here's a little wiki rundown on that because there isn't a lot of actual information on any of these people. In 1981, investigators learned that a woman who resembled the victim was seen with mobster Whitey Bulger around the time that this woman presumably died. Now, Whitey Bulger is a whole thing in and of yeah. himself, and we mm-hmm. can do a case. You love the mob. You Me can too. do Whitey Bulger at some point in time. But he was known, like his calling card was removing his victim's teeth. Mm-hmm. So this kind of set off alarm bells that maybe it could have been him. But um, a, a link to him, that's a very thin thread. They cannot prove that this woman was the same woman somebody saw him with, and they can't even find out who that woman was. And they never will. No, because he was murdered in prison in 2018. There you go. So he's not, and, and even when he was in prison, he was not pleasant. He was not going to talk to anybody. Oh, no. Snitches get stitches. They do indeed. He didn't From no him, more. He, was given, he was given the fucking yeah. stitches. So then they also thought perhaps it was a man named Tony Costa, who was a serial killer in the area that I had never heard of. A I, whole I, serial killer. I hate when they say, he was a serial killer in, in the, the area. area. Just like. Like they're a club. Yeah. It's just a baker in the area. I know. <laughs> I, and this guy has like a lot it. of kills too. I clicked okay. on him and I was like, like What's 30 women, Tony Costa. Okay. So we can cover him. Okay. And I'm sure that we will because a whole serial killer that I've never heard anything about always intrigues me. Yes. But later they determined that Tony Costa died um, on May 12th in 1974. So he was dead before she okay. died. Definitely not him. Sounds like a game show host. He does. Tony Costa. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. So then there was um, another already jailed murderer who confessed. Now, this is a relatively common thing. I don't know if it still happens, but it was back then. So if you go into like the confession killers and people who were just getting better treatment for confessing to other crimes, mm-hmm. they were like, well, I'm in jail forever anyway. So this could possibly either, if they have a death sentence, get them off of death row for providing information or just buy them treatment, special treatment and time for the information they're giving. Yeah. So this guy's name was Haddon Clark. And he confessed to the murder stating, quote, I could have told the police what her name was, but after they beat the shit out of me, I wasn't going to tell them shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. This murder is still unsolved, and what the police are looking for is in my grandfather's garden. So then authorities say to, then authorities find out that Clark suffers from paranoid schizophrenia because that's what they love to make every single murderer ever have. But this is a condition that could lead you to falsely confess to crimes or think that you did things you didn't do. Mm-hmm. So, okay, fine. In 2004, Haddon Clark sent a letter to a friend stating that he had killed a woman on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. He also sent the friend two drawings, one of a handless naked woman sprawled out on her stomach and another of a map pointing to where the body was found. That seems like it holds some water. Yeah. In April of 2000, Clark then led police to a spot where he claimed he had buried two victims 20 years before. And he also stated that he had murdered several other people in different states between um, the 70s and the 90s. He's busy. He's very, very busy. But this doesn't, 
I guess it doesn't go anywhere. They can't, again, these all trail off. There is no like, and then we found out it wasn't true because right. X, Y, and Z. It's, it's just, like they probably just didn't find any bodies. Yeah, whatever. no, they didn't find the, they definitely didn't. The place where he's like, these people are definitely in my grandfather's backyard. And there was nothing in his grandfather's backyard. Yeah. So like, this guy is full of shit, we think. Um, They're pulling up all my petunias. <laughs> and his poor grandfather's like, really? My backyard? Ugh. Yeah, so that didn't, didn't really go anywhere. But now I'm kind of interested in also looking up Haddon Clark. So I wrote him down. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. But as you know, a break in this case did finally come 47 years after it occurred. And this is where our stories and our angles all come together. Okay. In 2022, the skeletal remains of the Lady of the Dunes were sent off to Othram or Othram, whatever you want to call it. It is an American corporation located in the Woodlands, Texas. And no, I didn't say that wrong. It is the Woodlands, Texas. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this place specializes in forensic genealogy, and its sole purpose is to resolve unsolved murders, disappearances, and identification of unidentified decedents or murder victims. And they have a success rate a mile long. So if you look up Othram, there are so many cases these people solved. It's awesome. Uh, so Othram used the skeletal remains to create a DNA profile that was used to identify distant relatives through, you guessed it, things like Ancestry.com. Okay. Right. Which I, I am now at this point in my life totally convinced that Ancestry.com was a scam just to get everybody's DNA because... <laughs> They use it all the time mm-hmm. to find people. But also, like, if you haven't done anything, I don't, I wouldn't give a shit. Be like, what are you going to find about me? I don't care. I know. I've done things. Don't do ancestry then. Okay. Good. And this is where we come back to Richard, our baby from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Now in his 60s, Richard was hoping to use Ancestry.com to find his long-lost redheaded biological mother. At 60? Yeah. And he did. So that's exciting. Yeah. But he never thought she'd be the most infamous cold case in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's that is wild. And he genuinely thought he was finding her alive. He didn't. That's so sad. It's really sad. He didn't think like, oh, no, she's going to have like no one ever thinks they're going to be horribly murdered. But he didn't even think maybe she's passed. He really thought she was alive. Right. So that's so sad. And it's so sad because it's not even... I mean, I don't know if this is any better in that case. I mean, it's such mm-hmm. a horrible way that she died, too. So to also find that out. Mm-hmm. But it's like he never would have had a chance to find her. Because no. that stuff just didn't exist when she died. Like he right. was only like 16 or something. Yeah, right? this is one of those cases where I look at it and I go, that if this happened now. I think they would have solved it in like days. Yeah. Because there had to have been evidence that we would find now. But they couldn't find that. Well, also just her, like, that photo would have been everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, And we'll find out that had it been just circulated a little more broadly, Mm -hmm. they probably would have found that out, too. Yeah. Because the Lady of the Dunes was identified as 37-year-old Tennessee woman Ruth Marie Terry, Mm. the woman with the beautiful red hair and blue eyes, Mm. the woman that had a baby in Michigan, and the woman whose nephew visited her in a hotel. And that was the last time anyone ever has documented seeing her. Wow. Yeah. Which is wild because she didn't die for years after that. But it's the last time if like there's no other on record of anyone seeing her. Right. But for years, Ruth's sister, which would be Jim's mom, did look for her. She looked in vain. She did the best she could, but she's just one person looking around. And her sister was so nomadic. 
So if you remember back to the beginning when I was talking about her anonymously, she left home as a teenager and then she bounced around. She And so we, we also found out that she left home when she was like 16 and she moved outside of her hometown in Tennessee and she met a man named Robert Smith and married him and then they got separated. And then when she moved to Michigan, she was going by Ruth Smith. Okay. So the records are not even consistent. She also has several other quote unquote aliases, although I think there's a possibility she was married again. We just don't, we just don't know that much about her. Um, And then after she separated from her husband, that's when she moved to Michigan and she ended up pregnant and she had her son. She gave her son to this lovely couple for adoption. And then she ended up leaving Michigan and she moved to California. And she spent like, it says in every article, she spent this, like she lived in California in the 60s. So I think for like almost 10 years, she lived in California and mm-hmm. did, I don't know what. Nobody, California she things. did California. And then she moved back to Tennessee. And at this point in time, that's when she had like a different last name. So to me, I think maybe she got married again while she was in mm-hmm. California and that also didn't work out. Whatever, shit happened. Then she came back and she, she lived home for like a brief period of time where she met another man who we're going to get to in one second. So what we do know is that Ruth had a family who loved her and missed her. She had a life and happiness and love. This cold case had simply been too far away from it. So sad, isn't it? Like if it had just broken like a state barrier because she was like people were looking for her if they saw on the news. So if, for instance, any member of her family that hadn't heard from her in a great many years, especially her sister, has seen like, we found a woman who looks like this. She has red hair. She's this tall. Her sister would have been like, oh my God, that could easily be my sister. Yeah. Just never heard it. So sad. You know. So according to the New York Times, quote, at a news conference on Monday, which they're referring to this Halloween, mm. law enforcement officials said that they are now turning their attention to find Ms. Terry's killer by tracing her history and asking the public for tips. So now they're pointedly asking the public specifically about Ruth Marie Terry, not like this random woman. So they're hoping things will come in a little more quickly. They did not mention um, her ex-husband, Mr. Moldavin, who we're going to get to in one second. Keep teasing it. I know. Michael D. O'Keefe, the district attorney for Cape Cod, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard said, quote, it's very likely that the person who did this is dead, but they may not be. And so the message to them is that if they're still out there, we're coming. Oh. I know. I love a good, like, ominous, we're going to get you. I know. All right. So retracing Ruth's steps, they discovered that she had married her rich boyfriend that I spoke about in the section about her nephew, who was an antiques dealer named Guy Rockwell Moldavin, which is a name. Nice. Not Guy. No, pretty (laughs) sure it's Guy. And... You know what? I'm just going to read you the article from the Madeira Tribune, volume 69, number 140, on December 1st, 1960. All right. And if I slip into a weird old-timey voice, it's because I can't help it. <laughs> Once wealthy antiques dealer sought in disappearance of wife. Oh, Great man. title. It's a great title. Grabbing yes. me from the beginning. New York in caps, then parentheses. UPII. So some of this I don't get because it's an old-timey newspaper. The FBI today treated Guy Rockwell Moldavin, once wealthy antique dealer, wanted in connection with the disappearance of his wife and her young daughter, whose mutilated bodies were believed to be found in their Seattle home shortly after he remarried. The FBI said that Moldavin, 37 years old, will be arraigned later. Just later. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. 
Again, old timey <laughs> newspaper. It's like all chunked up. Yeah, yeah. Who will be arraigned later today? Thank God. Okay. <laughs> okay. Was picked up in a asterisk. <laughs> Sorry, this is a really not good copy. In a Greenwich Village apartment. Moldavin was also wanted by the Seattle police on a charge of fraudulently obtaining $10,000 from the stepmother of his present wife, so not the dead wife, the former Evelyn Emerson, on the pretense of using the money to buy antiques in Canada. H.G. Foster, head of the FBI in New York, said Seattle police wanted Moldavin in connection with the mysterious death of his second wife, uh, who disappeared on April Fool's Day this year with Dolores Ann Mearns. So his ex-wife's name is Zanita Mearns. Okay. And her daughter's name is Dolores Ann. Uh, and her daughter was by a previous marriage, not he's not belonged to Guy. Police said that bits of human tissue and pieces of a human body were located in a newly sealed septic tank, never good, at the home where Moldavin, his wife, and her daughter lived, um, and that he had operated an antique shop. Moldavin, who was schooled in Switzerland, New York, and Connecticut, there's Connecticut for you, as well as tutored privately on his family's cattle ranch in Tiberia, NM, divorced Zanita in Seattle on July 26th on a desertion charge and then married Evelyn Emerson on July 22nd. Five days later, police charged. He received a cashier's check for $10,000 from his stepmother, Miss Germaine Winkler, to buy antiques for resale. The disappearance of his second wife was first reported by her former husband. So her her first husband was like, my ex-wife is not around. Yeah. William Mearns. Guy Moldavin, who divorced his first wife, Joellen Loop, in 1956 after 10 years of marriage, was not directly charged with the mutilation or homicide. He was arrested on a technical charge of flight to avoid giving testimony relating to the mutilation of human remains. A John Doe warrant on the mutilation charge was issued on November 1st. So, that's awful. I know. That's a lot, though. Can you, like, summarize that? What yes. happened? <laughs> Basically, his second wife, this man was married a whole bunch of times. Yeah. He lived in a house with his second wife and her daughter from a previous yeah. marriage. And then he got $10,000 from her stepmother and was gone somewhere. And cops found, like, her, the wife, the second wife, Mm-hmm. Her ex-husband reports to police, like, I haven't, she's not around. She's missing. So they go to the house to try and find her. And they find bits of, like, her body's basically ground up. Her body and her daughter's body in a sealed septic tank in the house that Guy shared with them. Okay. So it's pretty obvious that this dude killed his his second wife right. and her daughter. And then took the money and ran. And ran. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Then, according to an article I read on a site called Mass Live, which I'm assuming is Massachusetts, that had the most information, because this is brand new. We're just finding out about this guy. Um, and actually, he's mentioned in an Anne Rule book. Oh. Just, she, she just happened to stumble upon this story, which huh. is so wild. Who, wait, who's that? Um, the guy, Moldavin, for the first story. She mentions him. For no, the, who? Who's Anne? Anne Rule. She writes like a bunch of true crime books. Okay. Um, she wrote like the Ted Bundy book way before. She's the one that worked at the suicide hotline with Ted Bundy and then wrote the book. Okay. Um, but anyway, just interesting that like his previous crimes <laughs> did attract attention. So this is according to Mass Live. Quote, Moldavin's name first appeared in the news in 1960 when living in Seattle with his then wife and stepdaughter. So we just talked about them. And he ran an antique shop in Seattle. Both women suddenly disappeared. Moldavin fled. So instead of like going to answer questions, he just ran. And police searched his home. And in the home, that's where they found the pieces of the girls. 
but without any DNA testing, it was assumed but never confirmed that those remains were the missing women. So they didn't have DNA back then and they didn't keep any of it. So we're just going to assume that's them, but we don't, we can't prove it in a court of law. Okay. Basically. So in their search for a Greenwich Village bound Guy Moldavin, quote, a bulletin issued by detectives when Moldavin or Moldavin, whatever, was wanted for grand larceny, said that the investigation definitely indicates the subject was responsible for the double murder. So they're looking at him for murder. The Boston Globe reported after, this is great, dyeing his hair red and receiving a nose-straightening operation under the name Michael Strong. So he went full fugitive. Police arrested him for unlawful flight to avoid testifying to the mutilation of human remains back in Seattle. But he denied killing his former wife and stepdaughter. Without evidence, Seattle prosecutors dropped the unlawful flight charge. So they had really nothing to hold him on because they couldn't prove anything. Years after moving to Reno, Moldavin married Ruth Marie Terry, who was going at that point by Terry Marie Vizina. Hmm. I don't know why she has so many aliases. I guess we'll find out. And after her death, this guy guy appeared again in California. The Californian would then write a profile on Moldavin's California is like a newspaper where he gained a cult following as a result of his popular radio show, Take to Me, on KAZU in Pacific Grove. So this guy's brazen. He has a popular radio show in California now. After he gets his nose changed mm-hmm. and dyes his hair red, okay. he moves to California and becomes a popular radio host. This which is, is after he was with Terry, or right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's after that. Uh, he called himself, quote, a devil's advocate for former Governor Jerry Brown's 1980 presidential campaign. And he told the Californian that in 1985, he retired from working as the executive vice president in a luxury shop on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. But to, quote, but to judge his callers, he has attracted a listening audience young and old. So he's very popular. Profile said about Moldavin's show, quote, branching out from topics which focus on old people. Moldavin has introduced programs dealing with homosexuality, the erosion of culture, and his belief that killing has become a habit. Maybe for him. Wild. I know. And this guy is saying these things on the air to a ton of people. Yeah. That is brazen. But we're never going to be able to ask him about it because he died in Salinas, California on March 14th, 2002. And never went went to jail for anything. Never for one thing. And on technicalities because of the time period. Yeah. Because now they would have gotten those remains, those bits of remains in a septic tank and been able to prove that it was those women. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't back then. But he died in Salinas, California, right? And his obituary appeared in the California and it said he was survived by his wife, Phyllis. This would be like his, what, fourth wife? And sister, Joan Towers. Police are investigating this lead as we speak. Interesting. So if you ask me, this guy totally did it. Like, yeah, he's a wife killer. You already killed one wife. It's not beyond. And in a really horrible way. If they were missing for a while and then they just found a septic tank full of ground up human remains, who the hell knows when he killed them, what he did to them, what he did after he killed him? Because there had to have been a reason why he ground them up and put them in a septic tank. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. That'll be interesting. I know. So this is one of those things where I, I can say, I know that was a little convoluted and confusing. And it's because. This is brand new information. Mm-hmm. Nobody has like a solid telling of this this yeah, part of yeah. the story. Nobody, there's only one or two sites that even have good information on this guy, Molda- Moldavin, Moldavin mm-hmm. guy. 
But we do know that there is that, like, connection between the two of them, him and the Lady of the Dunes. Yeah, he was married to her. Right. They got married in February of 1974, and she turned up dead in July. Right. Okay. And that is the boyfriend that, like, her family met. So their fa- the family knew him. They were like, mm-hmm. they didn't know they got married, but they knew that that was her boyfriend when she left town. Right. And they didn't find out about his former, and like, murder charges until just now. So they're finding this out with the rest of us. But how would he have been able to get married again? Because I guess maybe. Well, his second wife was dead or gone. Well, that's what I mean. Like, they're just, I mean, I I don't know if it's just because of that time. He divorced based on desertion, he said, with his first wife. So we can say, like, if he did, probably did that again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So he just got away with murder, it seems to me. That'll be interesting. Yeah, so I'm sure that, like, given the fact that we have threads to pull on now, police will be able to uncover things because there has to be, they had to know people. They lived out in the world together Mm -hmm. for four years or so, right? Or no, they were together and they left in 73. So there's at least a whole year of them wherever they traveled to being together. Yeah. They got married. There's records of them getting married in mm-hmm. 1973. So they had to know and see people. Someone mm-hmm. had to know them, basically. And I'll be very interested to hear, like, what becomes of that. Because that's the kind of story, like, when we talked about John List, how people are like, oh, no, he had this whole other life with this other wife that we, we know anything was up. Yeah. So I just wonder, like, what was their life like? What happened? We don't know. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. So. That is where we are with the Lady of the Dunes. My goodness. Yeah, but it's nice that they found out who she is. And I'm happy that her family also finally has closure because I can only imagine what, like, a very open-ended missing person for 47 years would do to your psyche. You're like, my sister's sister, no, her sister's alive and she, yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, so just disappeared into the ether. Yeah. Which is so crazy. Yeah, but can you imagine, like, her family also just found out, they're like, oh, she married a guy that probably killed two people. Mm-hmm. We didn't even know she was married, and we met that guy, and we didn't know he was a murderer. Right. That's a total mindfuck. Yeah. But now I'm just thinking about his current wife, who was like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> oh, for sure. He, yeah, he had a wife when he died. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's all crazy. And yeah. nothing has, like, a concrete anchor. Everything is just like, well, it trails off into the world. No. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure we'll get more info about that. We certainly will. And when we do, we will make sure to update you guys and we'll share articles and we'll talk about it. So, um, but that's, that's where we are right now. All right. Toast. Toast. So to uh, Ruth, Ruth Terry, Ruth Marie Terry. Yes. Glad that, Cheers, Ruth. We're glad that you're finally found. And we're sorry for what happened to you. Um, a toast to... Um, Ethan, for giving me that update about yeah. the Ouija board and James. Thank you for that update. Yeah. And if we disappeared into the ether with a wealthy, mysterious stranger, we, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. 
and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I'm going to home of the Krampus, where I hope to have a pretzel the size of my head.